The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing Star Trek Generations. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well, thanks. Folks, be sure to follow The Secrets of Star Trek on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher. Tune in your favorite podcast app or at the StarQuest Media YouTube channel, where you should be also be sure to hit the bell to get notifications. Uh, I want to tell you about another show on the network I'm sure you'll enjoy called Secrets of Movies and TV Shows, where we just talk about all the other great movies and TV shows that are out there. We've talked recently about Dune, and we've got Master and Commander, and like all kinds of other stuff. New movies, old movies, new shows, old shows. Check it out wherever you find fine podcasts or at sqpn.com slash secrets. So Star Trek Generations was a film. It was a transition between uh, the original series films and the next generation films, and it came out in 1994. And Jimmy, could you give us a recap of what happens? It's the year 2993, and three members of the original generation of Star Trek officers, Chekhov, Scotty, and Kirk, are on hand for the launching of the USS Enterprise B, as in boy. But things go wrong when they get an emergency distress signal. It turns out there is an energy ribbon known as the Nexus that's destroying some ships bringing Elarian refugees to Earth. After saving some of the refugees, Kirk goes below to rescue the Enterprise B from the Nexus, and he succeeds. But in the process, he gets sucked into the Nexus itself, and everyone assumes he's dead. Meanwhile, 78 years later, a new generation of officers is aboard the USS Enterprise D as in dog, including Jean-Luc Picard and the gang. They're doing their stuff, but it goes wrong when they also receive an emergency distress signal, and it turns out that the signal is coming from a space station where one of the original Elarian refugees, Dr. Tolian Soran, is holed up. It also turns out that the energy ribbon is the door to a space holodeck called the Nexus, and Dr. Soren has the worst case of holodeck addiction ever. <laughs> In fact, he is blowing up stars to try to divert the course of the holodeck flying through space so he can get back into it. Picard and the gang try to stop him. Uh, Picard beams down to a planet to try to get Soren to stop directly, but he fails. At the same time Picard is failing, the Klingon Duras sisters, Lursa and Bator, attack the Enterprise and manage to fatally damage it before they are fatally blown up in return. To save the Enterprise crew, Riker separates the saucer section, but it's damaged and the saucer section crashes on the planet. Then Soren blows up the local sun, killing everyone in the solar system, including all the survivors of the Enterprise crash. But Soren and Picard end up in the giant space holodeck. Realizing that the Nexus doesn't live up to its advertising, and since time doesn't mean anything there, Picard goes and finds Kirk. And the two of them jump out of the Nexus moments before Sauron blew up the sun. Together, the two of them stop Sauron, though Kirk falls from a great height and dies. 
but they saved everyone in the solar system, including the Enterprise crew that had crashed on the planet. The end. Mm. So the the movie came out six months after the season seven finale of TNG. So just to kind of place it in time, so mm-hmm. when the listeners can understand. And it was being written at the same time that they were writing the finale for Next Generation. In fact, it was the same writers, Ronald D. Moore and the other one. Brandon Braga. Um, yeah. Brandon Braga. And so they mm-hmm. both wrote this film and All Good Things which was the series finale at the same time. And they later decided that was a mistake. Mm. It, it, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because <laughs> in this, uh, we were talking just before we began, this was an okay movie. It wasn't, yeah. you know, it, was, it, wasn't it, was, it had a lot of pretty good stuff in it, yeah. but it's, it follows the Star Trek curse. All of the odd numbered movies are less good than all of the even numbered <laughs> movies. Right, right. Right. This was the seventh overall of the Star Trek movies. And yeah. Yeah, it was. It wasn't bad, you know. What it really could have been. I mean, they they could have done this as two episodes. It wouldn't even have to be like back to back. Yeah, you know, to be continued episodes. They could have had brought the character back and done them as two different events um, without destroying the Enterprise D, which was basically just we want to get rid of this ship and have a new ship for the next movie. Right, is really the only reason why that even existed. In fact, a lot of the stuff that happens kind of feels like that. We're clearing the decks, so to speak. For the for the TNG movies, and this is our way exactly. of doing that, including like, killing off <laughs> people. Yeah. Well, and, and of course, the whole issue with Data and the the emotion ship was just that as well, right? You know, and, and I'm sure that was that was that was probably uh, you know acting decision of I'm tired of acting like the the dumb boring android. I don't know if it was if Brent Spiner complained. I think it's a logical progression for the character, and the, it may have been motivated by the writers. So, it, and I didn't mention it in the plot summary because it doesn't affect the overall plot, but Data right. gets in this, the emotion ship that was designed for him by his human creator, Noonien Sung, that we had seen before in the TV series and Lore was misusing it and Data thought it was unsafe to install in himself. So he didn't, but he kept it. Jordy made him keep it. And so now Data is at a point where he is still failing to understand basic concepts like humor, and therefore he feels he's at an impasse in his development towards being more human, and he has Geordi install the chip, and we then get a lot of pretty interesting, actually, um, emotional roller coaster from from Data. And this is some of the more enjoyable stuff, as we see Data learning and initially failing to control his emotions. Right. One of the first things that he does is he goes to, he's like smiling and he and Jordy go down to 10 forward and Guinan serves them some new drink that is from some planet. And <laughs> data immediately cringes, but since he doesn't have experience with emotions, he doesn't know how to articulate what he's experiencing. And, and he takes another slug of it and he cringes again. And, Guinan says it looks like he hates it and data's like yes i hate this it is loathsome more yes please (laughs) that was was very good i like like he just the experience is what's important and he's feeling things um yeah and then he he goes to the other extreme when he's on an away mission and things get dangerous and for the first time he faces fear Mm -hmm. and he crumples 
and he does not know how to deal with fear at first. And then that leads into guilt because he 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 folded when things were tight and mm-hmm. he and he's guilty about that. And he gets a pep talk from Picard and he's feeling better and he's on the bridge and he's like told to scan for life forms on the planet and he's just enjoying himself <laughs> and it's like you precious little life forms, where are you? And he's singing as he's doing his work. And then when they finally blow up the Klingon ship that's been menacing them, he and the audience both go, yes! <laughs> yeah. And and yep. we get this nice range of things from Data that is a subplot that doesn't really affect the main plot, but it's very nice to see. We also get a cuss word from Data at one point. Yep. Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> as they're about to crash the saucer se- section. Yeah. Into the planet, yeah. He says, "Oh," and then an yeah. S word. Yes. Yep. And you know, and that, that is one nice thing about the uh, the TNG movies is they really develop Data's character and the emotions. I mean, it really is something that they develop through them, right? Well, in fact, the two characters who get the most development throughout the TNG movies are Picard and, and Data, and we see the mm-hmm. roots of, in some aspects, of both here because in addition to Data's emotional uh, journey. We see that Picard goes on a bit of an emotional journey here when he gets the bad news of the death of his brother and his nephew. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was think that was less successful. Yeah. Um because it just comes out of out of nowhere Picard's nephew and and brother are dead. They died in a fire and that's all we know. Yeah. Right. And it causes Picard to mope for most of the movie. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he's he's being rude to his officers and, and unnecessarily and to other people. And it is, um, it, it's less successful, much less successful than what's going on with data. Well, it, it's, it's setting up obviously the, the vision that Picard has in the Nexus to, yeah, right. you know, have that temptation to stay because he gets everything he wants. He gets the family, his, his nephew is still alive and everything. So it's, right. that's really it, all it's all about. Yeah. It's the last temptation of Jean-Luc Picard. <laughs> Well, what there's, I, I mean, I get what they're setting up, and although, like, like you said, not successfully, was this idea of the two captains, Kirk and Picard, both feeling regret over failing to make time in their careers for family. I mean, that's really how mm-hmm. it falls out. And when Picard overcomes that, he's then is able to help Kirk overcome that and go back to duty and to do the thing. But like you said, it it, it doesn't work, and that's why when they go back to with this in First Contact and set it up. A different kind of Picard emotional struggle. That's at least I think it's more successful. The Picard's post traumatic mm-hmm. stress from being uh, mm-hmm. turned into Borgified. a Borg, yeah, yep, Locutus. Um And then we revisit that in the Picard series. Let's go back. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay, I want to go back to the beginning of the episode because I got I got thoughts um, <laughs> on the Enterprise <laughs> B. Uh, uh, let's just. Say right up front, a, the champagne bottle smashing and in space, a champagne bottle will not smash and have liquid go everywhere. That bottle would be frozen solid in the yeah. depths of space. So let's mm. just it's, 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 that. it's a spa- space stable uh, it's champagne. A, it's a space <laughs> bottle. Yes, space bottle. Um, so we have this passing of the torch from one generation to the next, but we have no Spock, I, I also, McCoy. Okay. Yeah. I also like that they have this be the Enterprise B. Yeah. Because with the mm-hmm. original crew, we saw the Enterprise with no letter. Yep. And then we saw the Enterprise A. And then we learned about the Enterprise C, which got yep. stuck in a time loop and and in the and ended up stopping a war 
between the Kling Federation and the Klingon Empire. And then we're familiar with the Enterprise D, but we knew nothing about the Enterprise B. Yeah. And right. so it's nice to have that for completeness purposes. But as you right. say, we don't have Spock and McCoy here, and they were originally planned. Yes. In fact, they originally wanted to do the entire original crew and the entire new crew, mm. and they wanted them to fight. Yeah. And and they they thought the ideal movie poster would be like the two Enterprises fighting. And I'm going, mm. no. okay, no, <laughs> you're, you're, you're yeah. not going to have the 80-year-old technology seriously competing against the Enterprise D. That's yeah. not how yeah. military technology works. But they found the problem was they, they needed both crews because they, they can't have either group be the bad guys. Yes. And mm -hmm. so they'd need to create some situation where they're both good guys. Now, this happens all the time in comic books where you have the heroes fight each other before they become allies. But it's right. really hard to pull off if you're not in a comic book environment where people have loosened the rules of believability to allow two bad guys to fight, two good guys to fight each other for almost no reason, except they have huge, enormous egos along with their powers. And it's it's hard to come up with a realistic scenario for these two crews to fight each other and both be the good guys. And so they dropped that idea. But they wanted the original crew in this, and eventually it was down to, like, they wanted Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. But Leonard Nimoy it was used to involve having involvement in the story in in the yeah. story and what happens with his character. And he felt they'd just given him some lines that anybody could say. And so he bowed out and DeForest Kelly did too. And then they gave his lines to Scotty and Chekhov, which turns yep. out it's true. <laughs> could anybody could say them? <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah. Scotty replaced, uh, Spock and Chekhov replaced uh, McCoy. That's why Chekhov was down doing the, Sick bay scene, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was very clearly he, he would be he was doing the McCoy thing. It was kind of wild. Um, there is a uh, Sulu and Uhura are also missing, although we get a Sulu uh, in mm -hmm. this. We have Gamora. Sulu's da daughter, which is um, Kirk gets to say it wouldn't be an Enterprise without a Sulu without a Sulu at the helm, and this sets up the yes, whole. Yes, it would. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is because the the D has, doesn't have a Sulu at the helm. But also, it sets up the whole, you know, oh, who, how did he have time to have a family in the midst of all mm -hmm. this? Which is kind of weird that Kirk wouldn't know that Sulu had a, had a, I guess he had met her before, but he just yes. had lost yeah. track of how old she got, I guess. But uh, yeah. And I think it's more of a rhetorical question. How did he find time to have a family? Not like, I don't believe he, this is the first I've heard of this. Yeah, that's true. Right. That's true. One of the things you'll notice with Scotty and, and um, Chekhov is they both get lines that are unflattering yeah. to uh to Kirk. I was and, gonna say that, yeah. And and part of I think that's part of why these two actors agreed to do this, not just because they <laughs> wanted the money, but because yeah. Walter Koenig and James Doohan both have significant resentments about William Shatner. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and and this was a bit of I think payback on some level, which actually Shatner has been very good about. In a way, he mm. he knows that he alienated uh, a good bit of the original cast, and he's been willing to interact with them and uh, you know effectively apologize and let them tell him off to his face and things sure. like that. 
and I and and so having alienated everybody, he's actually been pretty constructive about it on the back end of that. And and it's it's fun to see Chekhov and and Scotty, you know, give him a little bit mm-hmm. of what could be considered his own medicine. My favorite is the line where, as the as the um, distress signal is coming in from the two ships with the Elorians, Kirk keeps starting to get up out of his passenger chair <laughs> and as if he wants to take command of the situation. And Scotty turns to him and says, Captain, is there something wrong with your chair? <laughs> <laughs> now, that would have been gold if Leonard Nimoy had delivered it. But yes. it's still really good yeah. um, here with James Dewan doing it. Right. There's also a, a when he the whole thing about Sulu's daughter, uh, um, you, you know, the, the he, he, Scott, Scotty says, uh, oh, it's that. So that's why you seem so restless. Like he he never made time for a family. Finding retirement a little lonely, are we? <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> that yeah. was a sharp one. Uh, and Kirk says, good, oh. it's a good thing you're an engineer because with tack like that, you'd be a lousy psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, uh, it, when he's musing about how did Sulu ever find time, Chekhov is like, "Well, you make time for what you consider important." <laughs> yeah. Yes, good line. True. Um, so Harriman, so the captain of the Enterprise B is Captain Harriman, played by Alan Ruck, who p- folks may recognize from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He was the the uh, Ferris's friend. Oh, what was his name? I can't yep. remember. Hmm. But uh, and. Uh, he he's a very different captain from Kirk. He's very cautious. He's very overly cautious when presented with a crisis. He wants to you know let someone else take over things. Um, I I I don't know that I read him that way. He he is more cautious than Kirk, but he's also dealing with. I mean, he does not have a full crew. He does right. not have a medical crew. That's true. He mm-hmm. does not have uh, half of the equipment. They I mean they name several pieces of equipment. And it's like we don't get that till next Tuesday, <laughs> right? And so he's in an he's in an impossible. He re- genuinely is not in a good position to mount a rescue mission, and he does the absolutely logical thing for once: call Starfleet and tell them about this, and let them send somebody because we're not the right people for this job right, right. now. That's true. And and then, but then, very implausibly, there are no other Starfleet ships within three light years of Earth. <laughs> of Earth, yeah. the central hub of the Federation that right. could do this mission, which is just completely implausible. But it's what we're used to in the movies. Yeah, and this is this that. was you know this was a press sh- briefing. This was a press showing. They're showing off the new ship. There was this was meant right. to be a cruise around the the solar system, as they put it. Right. Um, so yeah, then I mean, finally he really, has to ask please, Kirk for yeah yeah Starfleet command. Keep a supply of ready ships in range of your fleet headquarters at all times, okay? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. There are no ships, like, resupplying, picking up crew, you know. it. Yeah, you're right. Something mothballed they could quickly throw, throw yeah. it into. How about on guard duty? Right, or yeah. civilian ships, even. Yeah, that, that doesn't, it doesn't, it lacks plausibility. There, is there no Coast Guard equivalent in the uh, Federation? In, anyway. Um, so finally he ed- ends up asking Kirk to kind of take over and do what Kirk does best. Uh, and he gives him, you know, takes, takes charge. We do see, um, some recognizable faces among the bridge crew, including Tim Russ, uh, mm-hmm. who will later end up being, uh, Tuvok on Voyager, but he's done a few things before Voyager. 
on Star Trek, which is fun. There's also some other character actors among them that I like the faces I recognize, including uh, there's one woman who I, I'm pretty sure she was in Aliens. She was the uh, the uh, the female Marine on. Oh, in, one in of Alien. the female, one of the Marines that deserved to die. Okay, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, but and that, yeah, it's a, a whole bunch of interesting character actors there. I just I thought it was fun to see them. Uh, so among the refugees are uh, the Elorian refugees is Guinan. So we see Guinan here. She's an Elorian, and she's she's there. So so Soren is one of her people. Yeah, and I'm not sure that what they show in this movie is fully consistent with what Guinan has previously said about what happened with her planet and the Borg. Yeah, mm. my memory, and I I couldn't I I couldn't recall the details, and I didn't want to spend hours and hours watching old episodes. But my memory is that when I first saw this movie, it was like, wait a minute, this isn't exactly what Guinan said happened before. So they may be right. retconning a few things. Right. There, there is a, yeah, I was going to say that like they were, they were refugees because of the Borg, but they got caught on their way to Earth, I guess, in the energy ribbon. Yeah. And the, the other thing that kind of slide by very quickly is that one of the reasons Soren wants to go back into the ribbon is because his... His family died, and he, that's right. why he and they were there in the Nexus. I didn't get that. I got that the Borg killed his family. But I mean, yes, the, I th- right? The Borg killed his family, but in the Nexus, oh, he's going to have holodeck the, versions of his family. Yep. Yes, right. That's and that's that's why he was trying to get back in there. Um, so that yeah, so I thought that that was yeah, interesting. Um, and one day someone will make the movie Solaris, <laughs> right? Hmm. Uh. So then, so Kirk, like you mentioned, Kirk gets blown out into space, saving the uh, the, the Enterprise B, and we, then we switch seventy eight years later, and we see uh, the good ship Enterprise sailing upon the ocean uh, for Worf's promotion ceremony to Lieutenant Commander, and uh, he's made to walk the plank. And there's a whole funny thing about uh, Riker dropping him in the in the drink, <laughs> making the plank disappear on the holodeck there, and uh, then Data ends up pushing Crusher in. When she, after she tells him to, you know, humor is about spontaneity. He's like, "Oh, okay." And he pushes her in, and she yeah. gets mad at him. I thought it was funny. I thought it was funny too. It was pretty good. <laughs> it was nice to see because uh, uh, they'd done the they had done the sailing ship thing before on on the show, right? Where they had all sailed on it. I don't recall that. I, I, this was new yeah. to me. Okay, so maybe maybe I was misremembering. But um, I mean, they've done historical holodeck things already um but i don't recall them being on a on a naval vessel okay uh, from the age of sail it was kind of fun just to see them you know doing their roles but yeah. as you know age of sail a bit yeah and uh, there's riker is apparently really getting into it because he's using all kinds of nautical jargon yep mm-hmm. some of which if you look it up online the only references you will find are to riker using it of course <laughs> so it's like uh, yeah but i know he used it what i want to know is what did this mean <laughs> like the stencils he calls for the stencils to be set and uh, well those yeah. are commonplace it's yes the other stuff he mentions that I don't know what that is. I'm trying to remember what exactly, but uh, yeah, um, what's f- what is a little fun like for the, me? The termaganders and something. You <laughs> yeah. Know. yeah, right. What's fun for me personally is that I have ancestors who owned a sailing ship of this era named Enterprise. So it's kind of oh. fun to, to, to oh, wow. imagine. Um, cool. Yes, it, it, I've I've always when I found that out as a kid, I was like, it's my destiny to be a Trekkie. <laughs> 
<laughs> what what I wonder about this scene as a historical matter that I just don't know the answer to is, did they promote officers this way? Or is this something they came up with for for uh, for this episode, because for this movie? Because I can imagine in a crew like this, you could have promotions as a kind of hazing, which is what they're doing to Worf. They're hazing him yep. at the same time they're promoting him. Right. I don't think, like, in a British... I, I, don't, I'm, I know, mainly know more about the British traditions than I do about the American sailing ones, because I've read much mm-hmm, more right. of the British ones. And this doesn't seem like a normal sort of thing. But on, on the other hand, the... The crew was outfitted in like Disneyfied versions of like the, oh, yes. the ship was much more of a Disney version oh, of a sailing vessel. It's clean. Yeah. How about exactly. that? Every, everyone's per- wearing clean uniforms. Right. Perfect uniforms. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So the I think the word that uh, um, Riker used was to gunsels. Yes. And I think the word he was he was trying to go was to gallants, which are the the oh. very top uh, mm. on the mast. But yeah, I think. That might have been just... Uh, um, that could be why it's so hard to find. Yeah, it, it, it might have been, uh, um, what's his name, Frakes, <laughs> mispronouncing this, the word in the script, is my feeling. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I don't think this was a common thing, and it, it, you know, a way of promoting, but it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, there's, there's still, even to this day, in, in the military, an uh, essence of a bit of hazing that will, will go on sometimes, you know, when, uh, right. at least in the Air Force when I was in, they would tack on stripes, which means, you know, you'd show up at your office with your, your stripes sewn on your uniform and they'd punch you in the shoulder on the stripe to, right. to make sure it stays. Right, right, right. Mm. Um, so one thing I wanted to mention is the difference in the feel uh, or the look of the production. And so we've gone from TV production to movie production, but we're still on the same sets. And I found the sets to be very dark <laughs> Did anybody else notice how like dark yeah. picard's ready room was and and uh, how dark well, 10 forward was it was very weird they went through and they, i mean they completely redid the sets after they filmed the, the last episode you know they mm-hmm. completely repainted it they added stuff to it and stuff things like that um so yeah and of course the lighting i'm sure changed too in the process to more you know a film yeah. type lighting and stuff and, so and and they have the lighting coming in at a horizontal angle to the windows and yeah. it creates a kind of sunset like effect and mm-hmm. i think that that is deliberate i don't think that's because of the movie technology just being different it's because they're trying to create a mood around yeah. picard where he has had his family line except for him extinguished right and that's and they're trying so he's being a jerk to people and they're lighting the set accordingly right. okay this well, is this is jerk lighting Yeah, because <laughs> I, 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 I was wondering if the actual the cameras and everything would have been all that much different because they they used film for tng that's why they were able to do the True. upscaling a few years ago um and i wonder if they were able to basically use the same type of film technology but then just change the lighting Right, right. I I wonder, yeah, if if that you know the that sounds that sounds about right. I guess the other thing that I th- noticed different was the large number of extras on set. These rooms on board yeah. the Enterprise seemed much more crowded than they the ever did on budget. the show. Yeah, yeah, movie budget. Yeah, definitely. So that that I thought that was interesting. Uh, so as you mentioned, we get uh, Doctor Soran played by Malcolm McDowell, who was a lot of fun. With his stupid rotating handgun that's totally impractical. I know. It's a, how, how do you aim that darn thing? Uh, obviously, not very well. 
Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so for people who haven't seen it, he's like got this handgun. It's like a laser or something, but he's got this handgun and he holds it up with this, you know, with the stock and then, or, you know, the handle and then the apparatus that's attached to the handle rotates mm-hmm. and, and gets to about 90 degrees with the handle. So it's like off to the right of his hand. And it's like, why would you ever do that? <laughs> it, it, it makes it hard to aim it. And it takes time. You don't yep. want to wait for it to do its little 180 degree cycle or 270 degree cycle. You want to shoot immediately. So it's just <laughs> totally ridiculous and impractical. And they did it because they think it looks cool. But I just think it looks stupid. <laughs> it does look yeah. dumb. Um, speaking of Malcolm McDowell, by the way, that's he's Alexander Siddig's uncle. So Doctor Bashir, the actor who plays Doctor Bashir, uh-huh. that's his uncle. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I didn't I didn't know that before looking at this uh, episode or this movie. There are only actually a couple hundred people in England, so <laughs> right, yeah, and they've all been on hated. Doctor Who. So, <laughs> yeah. so we as you mentioned, Saran's in league with the Duras sisters, who are the comic villains from TNG. Yeah, I wasn't wild about them. Yeah, no, they never, never wild about them. I mean, I'm glad they got rid of them, so we didn't have to see them in yeah. PS9. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the reason why everybody cheered with Data. <laughs> yeah. Also, why? I mean, so their plan is they're in league with Sauron because he's got, uh, he's he's figured out how to use trilithium to make a weapon, right? And we've heard about trilithium a little bit before. It was in that Starship Mine episode of Next Generation where mm. it's a byproduct of the warp engines that use dilithium, mm-hmm. but it's extremely explosive, and so terrorists were after it in that That's episode. Right. So Sauron has figured out how to make a weapon with it, and he's going to give the plans to in exchange for transportation and stuff to, so he can get back into the Nexus. He's going to give the Duras sisters the blueprints for the plans so they can take over the Klingon Empire and become yep. co-empresses or something. Yeah. And when they show up at this planet where Sauron wants to go, he's like urging them to attack the Enterprise and they're going, dude, that is a galaxy class starship. We are severely outmatched. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm going, nice. Okay, good. Some realism. And then they they beam Sauron down to the planet so he can he can try to get back yep. in the Nexus, and he gives him the plans, although not the de encryption code for them until he gets down there, and we never find out what happens with that. But they attack the Enterprise, right? Why? Well, because what is we'll be- their motive for attacking the Enterprise that they have said? I mean, they eventually find a way to penetrate its shields, which is actually pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they, although this is totally not set up properly, and there are some, apparently some deleted scenes that might clarify this a little bit, but um, Sauron tortures Jordy. They've kidnapped Jordy. He, Sauron kidnapped him mm-hmm. for unclear reasons, and then he tortures him for unclear reasons. And he's taken his visor off, and he also mentions his heart wasn't in it in his interrogation. And that's a, it's a joke to a deleted scene where he put nanoprobes 
in Jordy's heart and it caused a myocardial infarction. Right. Mm. And um and that's also why when they get Jordy back, Dr. Crusher is like, I've removed the nano the nanites and you've suffered a little damage to your myocardium. Um, but we never got to see that scene, and we don't know why they're doing it. Why is Sauron torturing Jordy? What information is he trying to get? And then what we eventually learn is the Duras sisters have hi- have have hijacked Jordy's visor so they can see what he is seeing. They can't hear anything, mm-hmm, but right. they can see what he is seeing, and so they wait, and this is actually kind of funny. I mean, he's like, what has he been doing? Well, he took a shower, and then he got something to eat. He must be the only Starfleet engineer that never goes to engineering. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and then he finally goes to engineering, and they can see the frequency on a screen. They can see the frequency that the Enterprise shields are tuned to. And that lets them tune their photon torpedoes to that frequency and sail them right through the Enterprise shields. Okay, fine, cool. Why are they attacking the Enterprise? Right. Starting the, a war. <laughs> they, yeah, they've done their thing with, with Sauron. They presumably have the decryption code for the Trilithium weapon. Get out of here and go conquer your empire. Well, you know, right. revenge for the family and blah, 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 all that, you know. Right. But they don't set any of that They don't up. say that. They don't yeah. say that. But, or, you know, that's, I mean, that, that that's, yeah. would be a very much in-canon way you could look at it that they're getting revenge for everything Picard has done Picard and the Enterprise has done to their family and et cetera, et cetera. Right. I suppose. But yeah, you're right. I mean they they don't say it on screen. This is their motivation. And, and yeah. this is this is a point where, you know, it, it's clear they, they got rid of the Enterprise D because they wanted to get rid of the Enterprise D and get the Enterprise E for the next movies. Right. I mean that's right. literally all this scene is. Yeah. We need to blow this ship up so that we can then get the new ship, which is stupid. Right. Yeah, it is interesting. There there are several elements where they edited the movie and didn't quite do a great job of change like when they the deleted scenes here and not reintegrating them and taking out the the hanging bits like the torture scene. But also right down to the well, maybe we can come back to this with with uh, Kirk's demise. They actually mm-hmm. reshot that because oh, yeah. test audiences hated mm-hmm. it. And I can see why. I wish I, I wish there was a, a version available where we could see the original ending, right? Mm-hmm. Because a, according to Ronald Moore, they themselves knew this was not working when they were watching the dailies, yeah, mm-hmm. and the rough cuts. But they thought, well, maybe we're too close to this. Maybe we're being overly critical, and test audiences will find it okay. No, they didn't. Yeah. And and part of the reason, the only thing I've seen is on Memory Alpha, they have a still from the original ending of Kirk being right. shot in the back by Sauron. Mm, right. And it's like, okay, dudes, Kirk needs a heroic death. He doesn't get shot in the back. Right. And But I still would like to see the rest of that. I mean, I've read about it and so forth. And, and I, you know, I've listened to oral histories of Star Trek. And they all talk about the original ending was no good, mm-hmm. but I don't remember enough of the details. I'd like to be able to see it and see it in context. Yeah. Right. Well, but no. they, they let them refilm that. They also let them refilm the Christmas holodeck sequence that Picard has mm. to make it clearer what was being said. Now, now in the, the, if you remember, do you remember Jimmy? Cause, uh, when, when Kirk, Kirk at one, one point in one of the movies says, you know, he always knew he would die alone. He knew he wouldn't die with other people there, 
because mm-hmm. he always knew he'd die alone. And of course, right. he doesn't in this, at least mm-hmm. in the in the, the released film. Do you know if that's what happened in the original shooting the of deleted? it? Deleted? Deleted scenes? I, I don't. What I do know is that, because I, I read one of, I've read actually more than one of William Shatner's autobiographies. This was years mm. ago. But he talks, <laughs> he talks about this. I mean, you know, this movie was 25 years ago. Yeah. But um, he almost 30. Um, but he talks about yeah. his death scene, and he says that as he's laying there, because they filmed this out in the desert, mm-hmm. and as he's laying there, and they're going to lose the light, and so they, they're under time pressure to get the scene filmed, he's, he's kind of on his back, and he's talking to Picard, and he's saying, it was fun and stuff, you know, um, to try mm-hmm. to take the edge off the death. He, his eyes kind of go blank and he and chat william shatner said at that moment i was looking past patrick stewart and i saw a silver shape in the sky it was an airplane uh-huh. and he decided to pretend that that was the enterprise as he was dying oh <laughs> that's kind of cool <laughs> uh you know I, well, I remember when i first watched this you know back in 94 it lacked emotional impact for me like mm-hmm. I would have thought the death of Captain Kirk would have been devastating, you know, like yeah, you know, other you know characters who have endured for you know decades whatever. And it just I felt like it lacked something. Like it was is he really dead? He even well and and they did, William Shatner then had some Star Trek beta canon books written where he's not. Right. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. But the death sequence is poorly handled. Because the way they do it in the revised version, I have no idea other than him getting shot in the back. I have no idea what happened in the original death scene. Mm-hmm. But in this death scene, there's a, Sauron has a launch con, a launcher control remote control device that um, is for the missile that he's going to shoot at the star to blow the star up or shut off its nuclear fusion, which also releases a shockwave, none of which makes any sense scientifically. But... <laughs> right. He, he's got this missile he's going to shoot at the sun, and they've got to stop that from happening. And so they need the control pad that he's got. It's a little remote. It's like a TV remote control, only mm-hmm. it's for this thing. And so they've got to get that, and somehow it ends up on this catwalk, on this bridge between two rock formations. It's like an iron railing bridge. And he's shooting at him with the little stupid gun, and it causes the bridge to come into two parts, one of which is hanging from each rock formation. And Kirk is on one of these, and the controller is on the other. And these things are swinging back and forth <laughs> like yeah. crazy. Mm-hmm. To They're very unstable, and Kirk is supposed to... N- n- a not fall to his death off of the <laughs> one he's on right and b leap onto the other wildly swinging bridge fragment to grab the remote control device that clearly should have already fallen off <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because it's of magnetic. all the motion <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's no way that thing is there i don't care if you are wanting to pretend it's oh it's wedged by this other railing no this thing is flipping up and down. <laughs> there is no way that device is still there. And so you've got credibility problems for that. And then he finally gets the device 
And then the bridge fragment he's on comes loose from the rock formation and he slides down this tall rock formation and is fatally injured in the process. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not that great. It's I mean, not. maybe it's better than being shot in the back, but it is not great as a as a as a death. It is pretty unemotional and unbelievable. Right. right. The emotion is is partly because it is so unbelievable. Right. Yeah. And well, and I know, Dom, you wanted to say that, you know, Kirk endured for generations, but you, you tried to avoid the pun, but I had to bring it up. I heard you catch that. But uh, <laughs> yeah. no, no, I I agree completely. It's like they could have filmed this so much. They could have made such much better death scene for it. And it's just kind of like, yeah, he got hurt falling down a rock. The end. Right. Force Awakens, Star Wars Force Awakens, that death scene was much, hugely impactful. But because it mm-hmm. had an emotional connection between the two participants, like there was yeah. no, there was no, like, what I just didn't feel like of all the things Kirk has ever done, this seems like a pretty mediocre circumstance in which for him to finally end up dying. Fr- frankly, the Enterprise B dying on the Enterprise B was a much <laughs> more heroic death than this yes. was. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that that's my complaint about it. So, in thinking about the, I mean, he's got this confrontation with Sauron on this iron catwalk bridge thing. Uh, at a high altitude, I have in my notes control pad impossibly in place. Like that, they don't bother to. Oh, the 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 launcher that he's got for the missile he's going to shoot at the sun is cloaked. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and so it comes in and out of cloak at various times. And they, I like that they never bother to explain that there's a cloak on the launcher. They right. just assume that the audience will understand what a cloaking device is. Then I have Kirk defenestrated. Then I, which is he falls from this great height. Yep. <laughs> then I have locking clamps engaged, which is how Kirk, how Picard defeats the launch of the missile. He right. he locks the the clamps that hold the missile in place so that when it launches, it can't go anywhere and will just blow up. Right. Which mm-hmm. is which is what kills Sauron. And then I have. Then David Marcus turns on his lightsaber and it pierces Kirk's chest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I'm talking about. That would have had some some resonance if David Marcus emerges from the Nexus and shoots Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been good. <laughs> oh man! So yeah, there, there was also the issue of the time travel bit. I'm not sure why they could emerge from the Nexus in the right time. The, before the events, Whoopi said they could at Christmas and the holodeck. Well, Time doesn't mean any anything here. Right. You can you can leave at whatever point you want. Okay, you, yes. you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Oh wait, that's, that's <laughs> Hotel California, right? Right. Uh, we should probably mention a little bit. So Picard, we mentioned we said that Picard got his uh, ideal Christmas with the family. Uh, Kirk was reliving the day nine years ago on his timeline which was the day he apparently told his girlfriend of the moment that he was going back to Starfleet. Events that had never been talked about in canon before, I guess. Um, and yeah. We, yeah. This is, so for me, this is the biggest problem of the whole movie. And it was from the beginning when I saw it in theaters. Yeah. Because they're building up the Nexus as this amazing thing that nobody wants to leave. Guinan understands why Tolan, Tolian Sauron wants to get back into it. It, it, it. She describes it as like being wrapped in joy, like being inside joy and being right. wrapped in joy like a blanket. 
And and so um, she herself didn't want to leave the Nexus. She says, nobody does. Uh, but they beamed me out of it. And when I realized it was impossible to get back in, I eventually learned to live with that. So she reluctantly, you know, accepted life outside of the Nexus again. But she tells him, you're not going to want to leave. And yes. so this is like, this is, this is actually, it's kind of like, what happens in the novel Ringworld Engineers, um, which is the second of Larry Niven's Ringworld novels. In the Ringworld series, there is a device that um, will d- send directly electrically stimulate the pleasure center in your brain. And people get addicted to this, and they're called wireheads mm. because they're using wires to directly stimulate their pleasure center. There's okay. also a kind of fruit that is called tree of life that humans are biologically programmed to want if you're a certain age you want to eat tree of life at all costs it's part of our evolutionary history it's built <laughs> into us on a deep level and um and so in ringworld engineers you have larry niven uh, sorry lewis wu larry niven's protagonist <laughs> is a wirehead but he's one of the few people who's managed to beat his wire addiction and that strength to resist direct electrical stimulation of your brain's pleasure center is what gives him the strength to resist eating tree of life when he's exposed to it. Okay. And essentially this is that this needs to be that kind of situation where right. Kirk and and Picard both heroically sacrifice intense perpetual joy for the sake of going back and well, and saving people and this well, utterly fails to deliver on that yeah well the, the nexus i mean it, it's clearly meant to be a, a parallel to heaven you know yeah, the idea right. of the, being the joy of god in, in the beatific vision for all eternity but of course this is more of a an earthly human um what you're going to experience in that joy is a material happiness an earthly right. happiness but eternal ha- you know eternal joy on an earthly level anyways so which Kirk's joy? Like, because uh, clearly he's, he's just showed up and I don't see it. <laughs> no, he's kind of bemused by all the things that are as like, oh, this is kind of cool. But it's com- both for Picard and Kirk. It is completely underwhelming. They at mm-hmm. least could have given us, you know, white, white screen backgrounds to simulate, you know, <laughs> bliss and light or something. <laughs> right. That would have been better than than aiming for wrapped in joy and spectacularly failing by right. just giving us some experiences that anybody could have on a holodeck. Right. At least at least have Kirk in the relationship. Like with Picard, at least those kids were there and it showed him in the relationships that he would want. But but for Kirk, it was it was wasn't even in the relationship yet. He wasn't in the j- moment of joy. He's in the precursor to that moment when he's about to have that joy. Well, Either- they probably really couldn't show us Kirk's moment of joy in that relationship. <laughs> well, yeah, we don't. See, we, yeah, we see her from afar. When he, just before he meets her, or we see uh, when he's just about to go and tell her that he's going to stay with her. But it's like, yeah, there, there was. The, but it doesn't. It doesn't earn that. I'm going to stay here to come what may. Yeah. And, you know, but let's be honest with, with, with Kirk's character is, would that be his joy to be with her or would his joy being at the, the bridge of the enterprise for all eternity? Right. Well, mm-hmm. in fact, that's what they tell us at the beginning of the movie is what Kirk's joy 
would have been to be in the center seat on the Enterprise B, even though his time has passed. That and would have made- he tells he tells Picard never let them promote you, never let right, them take right. you off the bridge. So I was just underwhelmed by this yeah. aspect. After all the setup, it it undermined the movie for me. And as my brother aptly summarized it, so there's this holodeck flying through space, and this guy wants to get back into it more than anything. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, and what gets Kirk to leave to decide I'm going with Picard is when he realizes there are no stakes inside the Nexus. There's no real danger. There's nothing to lose. So therefore, nothing to gain. Uh, I'm not sure why he realizes that, but okay. But that's what ends up uh, getting him out. So one of the quotes they have when they decided to reshoot the ending was the uh, the head of the studio says, you have a great movie, but a bad ending. I'm not sure it was a great movie, but it was a, it was a decent movie. But I think it was a decent movie, and it still has a bad ending. <laughs> it just, right. it doesn't sell it. I, I feel... Apparently not as bad as the ending used to be. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, well, we'll have to take that one on faith, I guess, because that must have <laughs> been a really bad ending. <laughs> so, I mean, overall, there, like, I think as we said at the beginning, there is lots of things to like about this movie, mm-hmm. but it doesn't work completely on on a whole um it's and, and frankly uh, partly because it was the transition they needed they wanted to have this transition from old to new and it didn't work very well on either case i guess that's my that's the way i think about it but um any other notes from from you father cory on this so in in a stellar the stellar cartography scene data mentions that the bozeman uss bozeman had to have course change course bozeman is the one from the uh cause and effect the time loop episode from tng right, right. i wonder if uh captain fraser crane is still in command <laughs> that's right <laughs> how about you jimmy so they tell us so in order to show us the threat there's there's this earlier star that's a red shirt yep. that gets to die to show us the what will happen to the later star if they don't save it and when he blows up the red shirt star, Data announces in the stellar cartography scene that the destruction of the Amargosa star has altered gravimetric forces throughout the sector. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gravity waves travel at the speed of light. <laughs> yes. So it's going to take years for the balance of gravity in this sector to be affected. They completely ignore light speed limits in this. Yeah. Um, like later on in the first version, before they rewrite time, when mm-hmm. Sauron does destroy the star, he like shoots off the uh, the the missile. And Worf has told us it's going to take like eleven seconds to get from the planet to the star. Okay, that's fine. It's a it's it's this. They have warp technology. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but in I have in my notes, so they fire off the missile, and about eight minutes later, the sun goes out. Right. You know, because even if the missile can get to the sun faster than light, the light from the sun is plunking along at light speed. Yes. So they they just completely ignore light speed limits in this when they shouldn't. Also, the explanation for why he needs to get into into the Nexus standing on the surface of a planet is ridiculous. Right. He can just, I mean, the way he got into it the first time was, he he was on a ship that flew into it right and so take a ship and fly into it although they then say well every ship that's tried that has like so been destroyed or suffered severe damage and it's like yeah and who cares if you're in the nexus right yeah or 
get close to it and beam into it. They beamed you out of it, right? <laughs> so, you know, they, they do not set up properly um, why he's got to do it this way. They try to hint about, at one point he says, oh, I've been trying for 80 years. Trust me, there's no way. I need more than that. Yeah. Also, it is, it is, they do things in this just for, and this is typical Star Trek trope, where you'd really have this on an automatic system, like fire our weapons at the first moment possible Mm -hmm. instead of ridiculously waiting for a human to give a firing command way after you should have, or You know, we as soon as we separate from this from the from the drive section, we're going to go to impulse. So, like, wait for my order to go to impulse, even though we're in extreme <laughs> danger. Yeah, right. How about go to imp? I mean, it, it, go to impulse now and just rip off the drive section. If you, I mean, that's the way to get out of danger if you don't have time, or at least program the computer to take you to impulse as soon as the docking clamps are open. Yeah. Well. Now, now correct me if I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, going back to TOS, like early episodes of TOS, didn't they actually have it like the firing command from the bridge was sending it to fire control, and fire control actually did the shooting, but that was only like for a well, couple episodes. Yeah, that does happen in the original series. It's ambiguous. Yeah. It seems like yeah. they sometimes are have a have humans in charge of the firing, and sometimes don't. So this this is this is something that's endemic to Star Trek as a whole. Yeah. It's not just the yeah. movie. <laughs> Um, also I, and this is a minor thing, but I couldn't help but be distracted in the Christmas scene where Kirk's, uh, I'm sorry, Picard is looking out this window and, um, and there is very clearly fake spray on frost (laughs) on that window. (laughs) Yes. I remember that. Yeah. I remember that in, in the theaters. It's like, that looks so fake. Right. Yeah. But it's a minor thing. Something I liked is when the Enterprise saucer section does crash, they let it go on for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that is important. It gives it a sense of scale. It gives yeah. it a sense of emotional impact, that they they let this just keep happening, and we see the saucer section mowing down trees. Yeah. Yep. And it looks like, a you know, almost like the, aftermath of the tunguska explosion where you have this mat of trees in the wake of the saucer section and we see people in the saucer section doing stuff and trying to compensate for all the turbulence they're experiencing it also uh, demonstrates the difference in structural integrity between a modern airplane and a 24th century starship because (laughs) this would never happen with a it would have come apart much faster yeah yeah that's um so i did like that I also found it interesting that Kirk says about the house he's living in, I sold it years ago. It's like, wait, did you just say sold? (laughs) (laughs) How interesting. I thought you didn't have money. There's also an interesting bit. Now, they established Picard as a horseman in Next Generation, and both he and Kirk end up riding horses. They've never established Kirk as a horseman before, but William Shatner is. Yes. Hmm. Um he he like owns a horse ranch and he is a horse guy. So it was it was I'm sure nice for him to get to share his hobby on screen. Yep. And then finally they do a, a nice thing they actually have him repeat it twice 
when he's talking to Picard, he says, who am I to, and Picard has proposed something. He says, who am I to argue with the captain of the Enterprise? (laughs) And that's a nice, gentlemanly, classy gesture of saying, look, I know you're the new captain. Right. I'm the retired captain. And and the the fans don't need to fight about that. Yeah. Yep. That's true. Um, so I guess, uh, I, I think that's about it then for, for us, for our discussion. Um, yep. so generations, we're, we're passing the torch as we are in our discussions from the TOS movies to the TNG movies. And so the next time we come around to a movie, it will be, uh, I think it was first contact is the first contact. The, yep. yep. So that should be interesting to talk about then. Uh, all right, so we're going to wrap things up here. We're going to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Joshua P., Bronson, Tristan L., Tom N., and Daniel B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So, what did you think of Star Trek Generations? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash starquestmedia, or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Next Generation episode, Hide and Q. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thank you, and live lo- Oh, well... It was fun. (laughs) (laughs) And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, they say time is the fire in which we burn. No, they don't. (laughs) They don't. No No one says that. (laughs)